Hi, this is Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7. Well, today we have a complicated story, but actually it's very interesting. And my guest makes it interesting. She's a reporter from the Arizona Sun-Times, uh, and she observed the four-week hearing of John Eastman, attorney, constitutional attorney, former attorney for President Trump, who famously appeared on the stage on January 6th before he, before President Trump spoke. He's now a, on a hearing to lose his law license. Uh, Scott Pelley of 60 Minutes discussed this just a few days ago. Let's hear. Eastman was forced to retire as a professor at Chapman University. He asked to get on the president's pardon list, but that didn't happen. Today, he's fighting disbarment in California, and this past August, he turned himself in in Georgia and has pleaded not guilty. Who is the John Eastman that we see in the mugshot? The John Eastman you see in that mugshot is one who remains astounded that we have so corrupted our criminal law that this is even brought. I hope in the fullness of time we get our act together and understand this is a bridge too far in our criminalization of the law and our criminalization of our political opposition. Last year, Democrats and Republicans passed an electoral count law. It now clarifies the vice president's role is to read, not judge, the votes. Okay, Scott Pelley, in his uh, inimitable style, twisting, uh, because that, that means they just now passed that. Well, that would infer to you, to me, that before they just passed that uh, clarification of the Constitution, the vice president could actually uh, do something about the electoral votes. But we're going to get into that with our discussion with Rachel. I'm so glad you're listening. I want to remind you that you can listen to us on any podcast platform, AFR.net and Apple and Spotify and all of those good things. Uh, and you can call us at 662-821-2040. And you can write us at sandy at AFR.net. You can do all of those things. And you can also help us support uh, Preborn. Preborn is in the business of stopping abortion and helping moms to come to that conclusion, helping them discover that there's more to life uh, than their own personal goals and even comfort. Because taking the life of their baby or allowing someone to take it will have such adverse effects on their life. And so Preborn is there to show them pictures of their little baby through ultrasound so that they can make a better choice, a more excellent choice, as, um, as Paul said to Theophilus, all right, so uh, we're trying to get women to make a more excellent choice, and if you'd like to help us do that, and many of you have, go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. Well, for now, sit back, take a pencil and paper today because you'll want to notate or remember the things that we share about John Eastman and his disbarment hearing in California. This is Sandy Rios encouraging you to sit back and listen to today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice. What's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. 
John Eastman says he's innocent, and he told us if he was ever guilty of anything, it was giving bold legal advice to Donald Trump. Eastman was a little-known law professor who found himself at the center of history, among the architects of President Trump's bid to stay in power. One judge called Eastman's strategy a coup in search of a legal theory. Today, Eastman faces nine criminal counts in Georgia's election conspiracy case, and we found he's still handing out bold legal advice, this time to himself. Facing possible years in prison, he agreed to talk with us. But that was the first advice I got from my legal team when I put them together, said we don't talk about anything. And, and in normal times, that's the right advice for lawyers to give their criminal defendant clients. Um, but I quickly determined that this fight was much more about the criminal law, the specific law, and a public fight. We did nothing wrong, and it's important to counteract the false narratives on that uh, because uh, uh, all of my actions were designed to investigate illegality in the election to see if they had an impact. All right, Sandy Rios with you from Sandy Rios 24-7. If you've listened to my show, my morning show, or if you've listened to the podcast for long you probably have heard me talk with John Eastman. John, I confess to you, all of you, I know him well. He's a good friend. And I have been um, talking with him about the ordeal he's going through every, ever since probably January 6th took place. Well, what is he going through? Well, John is a, a, a legal scholar, constitutional scholar. Uh, there's a lot to say about him. And because of his representation of Donald Trump, he's lost almost everything and every position that he had. He's had to uh, move from California because of all the threats. Uh, he has had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and yet he continues to speak the truth. That was Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes. That, uh, just a few nights ago, Scott Pelley uh, interviewed John and other people as well. Fascinating. I recommend you watch it. Scott Pelley, of course, uh, characterizes John the way all news characterize him, the way uh, the judiciary characterizing the way attorneys now characterize him because they're scared to death to really actually come to grips with John, what John is actually saying. And so we're going to talk about this. He just completed a three-week, I don't know if you call it a trial, let's say hearing uh, by the bar in California. They want to take away his law license. Can you see, ladies and gentlemen, what a price he's paying, and yet he still refuses to relent. Well, Rachel Alexander is a reporter. Uh, she, you see her stuff in the Christian Post, Town Hall, uh, the Information Age magazine. Uh, she's also currently a reporter for the Arizona Sun-Times. The fun thing about Rachel is that she was a former lawyer and prosecutor herself, uh, so she knows a lot about what's going on. She has sat through every single minute of this hearing for John. So I've asked her to join me this morning I don't think anybody has followed this more closely than Rachel, and I want to know what she thinks happened uh, in that hearing. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And I just want to let everybody know I had an article come out within the last few hours about that 60 Minutes interview that you played a clip from because the rest of it that you didn't play was so biased, I had to get the truth out there. Yeah, good. Well, how, how can they find it? I mean, give us the title um, so that they can on- yeah, it's on ArizonaSunTimes.com. It's called CBS News' 60 Minutes Omits Key Facts, Makes Incorrect Statements Covering the Lawfare Against Trump's Former Attorney, John Eastman. All right, we'll put that on our Facebook page so that people 
They won't remember all of that. But they look at Arizona Sun-Times and look for Rachel Alexander, her uh, her article that's gone up about uh, CBS 60 Minutes. You'll, you'll be able to find that, and we'll repeat that again later. Uh, well, Rachel... Um, why would you? Why were you following John Eastman's trial? I mean, you, you, there's so much news. Why that? Right. I think I'm still the only journalist in the entire um, world who has uh, watched every single uh, hour of it and tweeted every single hour of it. Um, well, besides my background, which I was the Maricopa County elections attorney, so I have a keen interest. In I didn't know fraud. that. I did not know that. Yeah, the left doesn't like that about me because, you know, unlike their people, I actually think there was a lot of fraud in Maricopa County. So um, that besides that and being a prosecutor, the bar actually came after me and they suspended my law license for six months. So this was back in 2012. So this is right up my alley. I I had a horrible, miserable two and a half bar trial streamed against me. Wow. And and finally, constitutional law has always been my favorite area of law. So it was just an absolute. Yeah, it was a no brainer to go cover it. Yeah. All right. So I want us to talk. uh, Listen, I'm. At John's expense, I guess, I find this intriguing. I hate what's happening to him, and I want people to know what just happened. First of all, let's just go right to the chase, to the bottom line. What was the final decision in that uh, hearing? So the judge announced the second to last day, right after, coincidentally, um, Eastman said he wasn't going to have any remorse. (laughs) She announced that she had found him preliminarily culpable. So at that point, she's pretty sure she's going to find him guilty. And then the last day and a half was just the mitigating and the aggravating witnesses. So that's going to determine whether he really will be disbarred or whether it might be a you know lesser penalty. Um, we all know it's a done deal. And so after the parties submit their closing written statements on the 22nd, um, she will issue her ruling. We'll be back to Rachel in just a second. It's pretty fascinating, so I hope you'll... Stay tuned. I want to tell you uh, that a, a new sponsor that we have, relatively new, is Christian Healthcare Ministries. It is not insurance. It's a way to provide for the medical needs of your family and for yourself in a very different way. As a matter of fact, in this system, which works for millions of people, Christian Healthcare Ministries was the first uh, to actually come out with this concept. You are kind of viewed as a person, as a person without insurance. So now don't stay with me. You pay everything yourself out of pocket. And because technically you are a person without insurance, you can actually get lower rates, you can get better treatment, you can get a lot of things like that. Then what comes next? You turn your bills over to Christian Healthcare Ministries and they pay you. They reimburse you. Is that different? I would guess so. I guess that's very different than what most of us are accustomed to. And yet, People all over the United States have uh, been following and using Christian healthcare ministries for decades. And so, I, if you know, this is a very important time in our country in regard to healthcare. I've told you I'm going to be at that um, John Littell's uh, conference in Florida, the Florida Summit on COVID 2023, on November the 11th. I invite any of you that want to come uh, to come and join us at that. But they're going to be talking about health care freedom. What's our future with this? And uh, insurance companies and uh, health facilities have proven themselves through COVID not necessarily to be our friends. That's not a blanket statement yet, but you have to be cautious. It's probably a very good idea to think about extricating yourself from at least some of that system 
and having your medical needs met in a different way. Go to Christian Healthcare Ministries uh, and find out what they're all about. It's chministries.org slash Sandy. That's chministries.org slash Sandy. Okay, so let's talk about what it is they're charging him. Why, you know, why do they think he's unworthy to maintain his law license in California? What's his big sin? What did he do? So it's a litany of charges, um, everything from, you know, moral turpitude. That's that's what they use when they want to get an attorney on something and they don't have any real charges against them. And, um, you know, subverting the laws of the United States, um, I think false filings, you know, just they kind of just threw the kitchen sink at him you know, hoping that something something would stick. But Dad, I understand this correctly because, you know, I did not watch it. I've read lots of things from lots, your sources and other people too. And my understanding is that, and I, probably from the Scott Pelley interview also, that the focus was on his representation of Donald Trump, uh, his uh, advice to President Trump that the vice president did not have to accept the electors on January the 6th, that there was... Uh, the Constitution provided, no one's clear, because I've talked to John about this, so I, no one's clear. It's not clear in the Constitution what the vice president can or cannot do, if he must receive the electors from Biden as presented, or if he could take a pause while there was a uh, determination about whether these states who were bringing, saying, please don't go ahead, we've got too much confusion here. Laws have been broken, and we have a lot of confusion. Please hold off. The, John's maintained that uh, Mike Pence had, to, had could do that, uh, and that's part. Is that how? What? How big a piece of the accusation is that? That is at least half of it. The other half is that there was no election fraud. Um, but as to that first piece, um, the, the the trial was so biased and so bad that if you read the California bars charges, they said that John insisted that Pence had to reject the electoral votes. And that's just flat out false. That's inaccurate. That's not what his position was at all. Um, He wrote a six page memo for Trump, which went over all the different things that Pence could do. And, you know, just like an attorney does, attorneys don't tell clients what to do. Attorneys say, here are your legal options and here is what you may consider. So it doesn't even pass the smell test that he was trying to call the shots and tell Trump what to do. So of those options that he laid out, many of them would have allowed Biden to win. So you see how the bar has to mischaracterize it in order to try to make him look bad. Like, oh, he was saying we needed to have this insurrection when, I mean, even that's a distortion. And then on top, and then on top of that, all the bar's experts who got up there and said that uh, there was no legal authority for Vice President Pence to do that, the trial brought out that they were in fact completely false and lying. Every single um, law expert, with the exception of one, has said that the vice president has that authority. And a couple of the ones that they found that like said they didn't agree, they reversed themselves. Well, well, let me let me just stop for a second and play a clip. Uh, this was uh, this is again from sixty minutes uh, from Sunday night. You were there. You heard a lot of this, but this is how Scott uh, characterized it. Scott Pelley. And then, um, then Greg, Greg Jacobs, who is Pence's attorney, uh, is also heard in this clip. So I want us to he- listen to this, and then I want to get your response. This is clip six. 
On January 6th, electoral votes from the states are counted before a joint session of Congress. The Constitution appoints the vice president to open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted. But two days before the count, Eastman came to this Oval Office meeting with a radical interpretation of those words. Vice President Pence, he said, had the power to stop the count and return the votes to the states for reconsideration. To delay, to let them finish their investigative work and make a determination on whether the illegality had affected the outcome of the election. And if it didn't, to report back so that we could have some more certainty about the validity of the Biden electors. But if it did, then we wanted to make sure that the person who actually won the election was the one that was certified. No vice president had ever exercised this authority. No vice president had ever claimed to have the power to exercise this authority. Greg Jacob was Vice President Pence's legal counsel. He was in the Oval Office, hearing Eastman read between the lines of the Constitution. So it really was him inventing something without any historical roots or any historical foundations and then desperately trying to find some hook in the constitutional text that neither history nor structure nor practice nor common sense supported. All right, again, that was Greg Jacobs. You heard that last bit. And he was the uh, legal counsel for Vice President Mike Pence at the time. He appeared on 60 Minutes, and that's what he said. But, Rachel, that's patently false, isn't it? What Greg said is not true. Oh, my gosh. I have now decided that Greg Jacob is a bigger weasel than even Pence. And in my article, I quote from a memo that he sent Pence in December 2020, where he went over the legal precedent historically. And he said it was ambiguous whether or not the vice president has its authority. But he leaned toward thinking Pence did have the authority because he cited some instances in the past where the vice president did exercise this sub. You can't make this stuff up. This this is so abhorrent. It really isn't. And then, of course, John Eastman himself, as you well know, has laid out all the historical precedents for this. He didn't just create this out of whole cloth. It's not some fanciful theory. Uh, there has been confusion. In fact, I think it was way back in Jefferson's time. And in, in, like in the, I believe in the 30s. We don't have to get into all of that. But it has been... It has happened before more than once, and that's the point that John has made very carefully in his uh, legal briefs as he lays them out. I want to continue with Greg Jacobs. Well, actually, I want to make this point. Um, This is what Greg also said on 60 Minutes, uh, and I want to follow up in a second with a statement from Mike Pence in Iowa just before January 6th. So here is Greg Jacobs on 60 Minutes, just this. This is... um, November of 2023, in case you're listening at some other point in time. Here it is. Greg Jacob told us Vice President Pence never believed he had the power to do anything but open and read the certified votes. Did you see at any point in this period the Vice President reconsider that view or waver in that determination? No, the Vice President never wavered. Uh, It never made sense to him that the Vice President would be empowered to decide issues like that by the framers. And he said, look, I I know the rules that judges have to follow. You would never allow a judge to preside over and decide an issue when they have the kind of interest that I have in this case. I'm on the ticket. Obviously, I want us to win this election. Um, 
how could it possibly be proper for the Vice President of the United States to decide such an important question in which uh, he has a personal interest like that? All right, so that's, uh, again, that's Greg Jacobs, attorney for Mike Pence, uh, and on 60 Minutes uh, just a few days ago. Rachel? Rachel. Okay, so explain why that's a little troubling, that statement. Because if Pence really was never wavering, as Greg Jacobs said, then why did he say at a rally in Georgia two days before the January 6th certification, we've all got our doubts about the last election. I share the concerns of millions of Americans about voting irregularities. Come this Wednesday, we'll have our day in Congress. We'll hear the evidence. Yeah, you know what? Because uh, let's actually, Rachel, people might, might not believe you. So let's listen to Pence say that. This is clip three. You know, I know we all, we all got our doubts about the last election. And I want to assure you, I share the concerns of millions of Americans about voting irregularities. And I promise you, come this Wednesday, we'll have our day in Congress. We'll hear the objections. We'll hear the evidence. Yeah, so that was President Pitts, and that's right before January 6th, as you just said. But there are other other troubling things about that, too, aren't there, Rachel? Like, I, I don't maybe you haven't seen this. Uh, Julie Kelly actually reported this uh, just a few days ago. Uh, she said that, well, they're claiming that Pence never, uh, he made it clear to President Trump that he was not going to do this. And yet she has uh, made note here that they actually, Pence and Mark Short, who I haven't mentioned yet, that was the chief of staff for uh, Pence, who was a never-Trumper. And when he was, when he was appointed, we were, we were all just furious, to be honest with you. He served in the White House uh, with President Trump, all the while undermining him. And many of us felt that Mark was trying to get uh, something, to, trying to not hurt, you know, not do anything to stop. President Trump being uh, taken out so that Pence could actually step into that. So that last phrase that, you know, after all, it was my election. I'm sure I wanted us to win. I don't. I think there's a reason to believe that might not have been true. Um, but, uh, Rachel, any more thoughts about, before we go into a, a different subject matter in this, about uh, the, the attorney or Pence? Well, during his trial, uh, John said that when he was in these meetings with Trump and Pence a couple days before January 6th, he said Pence's attitude was that he had not made his mind up yet. So, you know, whether you believe John or you believe these revisionists now, um, I believe John. And I believe that Pence was, you know, not really sure. He seems like he's a scared weasel, but his own attorney, Greg Jacob, was advising him in December that he likely could reject the, you know, bad uh, slates. Uh, so anyway, that with that, we've probably uh, made the point on that. Now, you watched this whole thing for three weeks. What were the low points from your perspective uh, for John? And look, I, I tell all of you, I make no bones about it. I'm on John's team. I believe him. I know him to be a man of absolute integrity. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not unbiased in this. But if, uh, what were the low points for John Eastman in this trial, from your perspective? That's a very interesting question because I really have to think hard. I mean, he's, you know, arguably the top constitutional legal um, scholar in the country. Um, he can run circles intellectually around anyone. 
Um, so, you know, I, he doesn't make mistakes. Uh, his attorney is extremely skilled. Randy Miller, um, his expertise is barred disciplinary proceedings. It's not like it's, you know, constitutional issues or election fraud, but, um, his attorney was so good at bringing in stuff. The judge didn't want to let him bring in that. I, I mean, she wouldn't admit it necessarily into evidence, but she let it be discussed. So then us journalists can get the word out. You know what I mean? Um, I, it's, I, it's really honestly hard. I don't think their legal team made any mistakes. You mean John's? I, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about the judge. Okay, so this judge um, donated to Democrats while she was serving on the bench, which isn't banned in some states, but some states it is. It just looks bad. Um, she uh, was just so abhorrent. She would allow 90% of the bar's uh, exhibits into evidence, and she'd let 90% of their witnesses speak. But it was the reverse for John's team. You know, 90% of their exhibits weren't allowed into evidence and she would cut them off from talking about them. And then, um, you know, their witnesses, most of their witnesses weren't allowed to testify. And, and, and whenever John's team would bring up stuff that seemed extremely relevant, she kept, she'd always say, it's not relevant, move on. It's not relevant, move on. And, and, and she kept saying anything after, you know, January 6, 2021 is not relevant, but Whenever the bar brought up something that happened, you know, two years later in 2023, she'd let them talk about it. That's all on the record, right? R right. I mean, she'd let the, them talk about things that were on the record, but Eastman's yeah. team, you know, they just start going down one path and she'd say, that's not relevant, striking all that testimony. Now, I <laughs> so think just a journalist reporting. Well, wasn't, I think part of the goal or for John Eastman and his team was to actually lay because they were accusing him of being. Oh, this is my term. Should maybe they didn't say this because this is like the the layman's term, election denier. That he believed twenty twenty was stolen. How could he believe this? And I believe he tried to lay out the the evidence uh, that he saw in various cases around the country. Is that what she would not hear, or did any of that get through? She would start to let some of it through, and that's where I credit him and his attorney because they were so clever. Even when she would deny something, they'd figure a way to come back at it maybe days later and bring it back up. It was it was so good. But, uh, yeah, I mean, she didn't want to let him get at the meat of the matter. Like, if she had had her way, he wouldn't have been able to testify about anything. She just kept cutting it all off. But he managed he managed to make his point, do you think? He did. And and when it came up to the some of the election denial stuff, the California bar's attorney thought it was a good idea bringing it up because towards the end of the trial, he was just asking him, okay, where was there election fraud in Georgia? Where was there election fraud in Arizona? I mean, he, he, he thought it would make John look really bad because, as we all know, it's been very difficult to actually prove election fraud. It's a very specific crime. You need, usually need lots of discovery and investigation. So you're not going to be able to prove it until you've been, actually been allowed to look at the equipment and documents and then go through a trial, which no judge has ever allowed. So John was able to, you know, shoot back and say, look, a lot of my beliefs were based on merely the illegalities, not necessarily the specific crime of election fraud, but there are all kinds of other illegal crimes where elections are overturned. 
And then he did point out a few examples where there was election fraud in his mind, such as in Pennsylvania, where you had that truck driver working for USPS who completely admitted, yes, I, I transferred these, these, you know, I think it was a couple hundred thousand ballots from New York to Pennsylvania and dropped them off. You talk, you're right, you know, because you did a lot of tweeting, and I read, I read a lot of them, Rachel. Uh, there were some, look, we can already see that you have, uh, kind of like me, you have kind of a sardonic, you laugh at things that aren't necessarily funny, but you find humor in this. And I think that's like a law enforcement officer. You have to find the humor in some tragedies. Sometimes you can't survive. But you do, did write about a few incidences where John, <laughs> well, I should ask you, uh, were there any incidences where, where John kind of uh, shone and maybe made the prosecution look bad? <laughs> yeah, there were so many. And I have a wicked sarcastic sense of humor. So that's all going to come out, even if it doesn't seem very professional. Um, yeah, he just he ran circles around them. Like at one point, they were challenging him on, you know, where was there evidence that there was this type of fraud in Georgia? And, uh, you know, he shoots back at them, you know, footnote one of your exhibit 132. <laughs> Because he's got this encyclopedic mind that just remembers everything. It's it's really amazing. So uh, so that that's part of it. He just doesn't ever get thrown. And you know the the thing that really is remarkable about John is that he just he refuses he refuses to back down from the truth in spite of all of the the, the dear price he has paid and is paying. He just never backs down. I don't know of anybody else who's. Maybe Rudy Giuliani, I haven't seen yet. I don't know that. But it's just amazing to watch that. I think certainly courage breeds courage. And when we see people showing courage, uh, I'm sure some will run the other way and uh, you know stop speaking out. But uh, for those people that have an ear for truth, uh, hopefully it will bring courage. Um, anything else about the trial? You wrote about it so much, Rachel. Some things I might not know to ask that you want to share. You know, I think the main thing for me um, was all the evidence of election fraud. Um, I've always found it very interesting, obviously, being here in Maricopa County as the former attorney for county elections. But just all the evidence from other states that a lot of us didn't see because we were paying, you know, mostly just attention on our own states. And the mainstream media suppressed so much of this research that was coming out. But the trial brought out some of the top experts on election fraud across the country. Some really, really impressive people. Some of them testified during the trial. Um, there's a wonderful website that I encourage everybody to go familiarize themselves with. It's election-integrity.info. And it's run by John Droz, who's this uh, statistical uh PhD. And he got together a bunch of other statistical PhDs to look into all the election fraud. And the reports he produced were amazing. One of my tweets got, uh, what is it, 1.5 million views because oh. I was tweeting out one of his reports that he discussed at the trial, which was how this refuting this mainstream media talking point. There were 60 election challenge cases in 2020, and none of them had it merit. They were all thrown out. But Droz and his team of statistical PhDs went over and found that there were actually 92 election challenge cases from 20, 
20. And of those, about 31 or so were decided on the merits and 23 of them were found to have been valid. And there's more stuff uh, along those lines that came out in the trial, such as, you know, when the Supreme Court declined to take the, uh, what was it called, Texas versus Pennsylvania election challenge case that wanted to stop the certification. No, the mainstream media doesn't tell you that that case was rejected four to four. Um, Justice Ginsburg had just passed away. And um, so the court was split. So they ended up not taking it. But that's how close that margin was. Wow. I didn't actually I didn't even know that. I didn't know that. I'd forgotten. So that's pretty interesting. And then that Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania case, which uh, they felt was so strong uh, because the Pennsylvania, as I recall, the, the powers that be had, had really broken the law, the election law. Uh, I think it was mail-in ballots or something. And it, they thought, I think that that was a um, a case that would just definitely be heard by the Supreme Court, but they rejected it. Sam Alito was the one who sort of spoke to whatever you, the opposite opinion, whatever the word is, uh, and, and said, you know, yeah. So uh, there were so many cases like that, Rachel, and we do need to make that point, and I'm glad you did. See, a lot of this I just take for granted that people know, but they don't, because this is repeated over and over again. No court ever heard anything. The evidence wasn't, it never even went to trial because there was nothing to it, and that's just a lie. Uh, and I want to uh, repeat that address that you just gave. It's election-integrity.info. Election-integrity.info. Okay, is it something that regular people could read easily, or is it, you know, like engineer style? It was super easy to read. Yeah, they've, they've done a great job. I, I didn't even think twice about it in contrast to this um, California bars statistical expert who testified, oh my gosh, if you go read my last two days of coverage of the trial, this guy was incomprehensible. I was trying to figure out how he was refuting what John had said. And, and I was, you know, texting very smart constitutional attorneys during the trial. They couldn't understand what the guy was saying. And we think it's because he actually wasn't able to refute what John was saying. So he was just using a bunch of, you know, jargon and lingo. So he was the expert witness for the prosecution, right? And as I understand it, okay, was this uh, Justin Grimmer? Is that who you're talking about? Yes. And and that. so the and so the I think you went I don't know who discovered this if you did in your research that he hadn't even been following elections before 2020. So he was their expert witness. Yeah. Well, it, 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 and it, it and it gets even worse. Like the one they were going to use at the end of the trial instead of him, this Matthew Seligman guy who just appears to be a glorified law clerk. Um, that guy, I believe they cut him from being their final rebuttal witness because it looks like he was practicing law without a license, with an inactive license when he was advising the California wow. bar and drafting the charges against John. Wow. Well, there's a lot more we could say, but I just would commend Rachel's writings to you on this. And if you go, I think, to azsuntimes.com and Arizona put in Rachel'sSuntimes.com, ArizonaSuntimes.com, you can find Rachel's writings on this if you want to go back and find more detail or see um, more fully what she has described here. Um, one last thing, Rachel, they found him culpable for misconduct, culpable for misconduct. So he's not disbar disbarred yet. What's, what's the story with that? Where does it stand? Right. Um, he won't be disbarred until the judge, uh, you know, issues her written opinion 
And then at that point, he's obviously going to appeal. And I know the process myself from having my license suspended. When you are appealing, a, a higher court might um, put off the disbarment while you're appealing. So that's pretty much likely going to happen, I would guess. Okay. And is there any recourse? Like, uh, if he, uh, California is never going to rule in his favor, it, the lower courts or the Supreme Court. Uh, does he, does, is this the kind of thing? that the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court would eventually could eventually hear us at a different track. Absolutely. My gut instinct all along is that they, Eastman's team has been preparing for this to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And they do take disbarment cases. They've taken, you know, a bunch of them in the past. Um, considering he clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas, and these are all of his academic colleagues, and considering, in my opinion, this is not just a straight election fraud case, which they've, you know, mostly tried to duck. This is something involving their own livelihood. This is personal, I think, to those attorneys on the Supreme Court. So I think they're going to accept it, and I don't think they are going to put up with it. I think they will overturn any disbarment. Very interesting. Okay, Rachel Alexander, so nice to talk to you. Go to Arizona dot suntimes suntimes arizona suntimes dot com and you can yeah. find rachel's work and uh just follow her and she's great on twitter too so follow her tweets all right rachel it's great to talk to you and thanks for such great reporting and keeping you that's an important part of history and you've been the one most faithfully covering it so thanks for doing that thank you so much for having me on god bless sandy this is sandy rios 24 7 on american family radio Hi, Sandy Reels back with you. Did you know that through the ministry, and we it is ministry of preborn, between January to June of 2023, 29,134 babies have been saved. And that's because of you. Much of that's because of you. Because you've been so generous. They have placed 32 ultrasound machines in various uh, places in the country. 32! And they're very expensive. And that's also because of your generosity. They have had... I don't know if it's mothers or fathers or people connected with this particular woman who's pregnant. Of those people, 4,993 have made commitments to Christ. Uh, That's why Preborn is a ministry. If you would like to help them, many of you do that on a regular basis. Go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. 63-year-old John Eastman graduated from the University of Chicago Law School clerked for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and was dean of Chapman University's law school in California. He views the world from the far right and has said the political left is an existential threat. We're no longer disagreeing about means to get to shared ends. Uh, We've got wings of the two parties that disagree fundamentally on the ends and the purpose of our government. Existential. You said. Well, I do think existential. I, I think what we're seeing now in the criminalization of political opposition and the threat to, to shutting down speech of opposing political views um, means that the people are no longer in charge of the direction of their government. That's the voice of John Eastman, uh, interviewed by Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes. And I, I've never seen, well, there may be exceptions, but he is really one of the most clear-thinking, cogent people I have ever met or known in my life. But I've asked Bruce to join me. Uh, Bruce is a former prosecutor. 
He's also a former FBI agent, and all these things are you know, of keen interest to him. Bruce, just your thoughts on what you've heard so far. Well, following up on what you just said about the qualifications of John Eastman, I mean, he's been um, a student at the University of Chicago Law School, one of the top law schools, certainly when he went through it, and I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, he's been Justice Clarence Thomas's law clerk. He's also been a dean of a law school in addition to practicing law. Think about that. His experiences encompass the entire world of practicing law, not just the practical, but the theoretical. And I think that's very important to keep in mind when you look at what happened regarding January 6th. It, as you just mentioned towards the end of the broadcast, there has been a new law passed that spells out the role of the vice president in, in cases of counting the electoral votes. Obviously, if it's a new law, then there was no law <laughs> exactly. when Mr. Eastman was advising Vice President uh, Pence as to whether or not he could pause the count. And let's make sure we understand that. Eastman never told Pence to stop the counting and, and, and uh, it, it reject the, the votes. He told him, you can pause the counting and make sure that what has happened is lawful. You know, you think about a sporting event. We now use instant replay in professional sports and college sports all the time. And I remember when they first proposed it, a lot of us were like, oh, come on. That's why you have a referee. Let him make his call and then move on with the game. But now that we have instituted it, and they go back and review these calls, you see how many mistakes were made and were missed by the referees. Well, I would submit that this situation was very much like that. An attorney's job is to advise his client of options. And if there is an ambiguity in the law, which it seems like there was regarding the vice president's role on January 6th, you, you, your job is to advise that your client, these are the options that I see that are lawful. You don't tell them you do this, you do that. You tell them these are possible. And I think John Eastman made his case that I advised Vice President Trump or uh, Vice President Pence that he could pause the counting if he, if he thought that the uh, electoral slates had not been properly seated. And uh, you know, the, the, um, the swearing in wasn't for a couple more weeks. And in a couple of days, those, those investigations probably could have been conducted and then a certification of the votes. Yeah. And that's why so many people descended on, uh, on D.C. is because there were so much election, so many questions, so many problems in various states, and it was obvious. And people were upset, and they did. They wanted there to be a pause. That's why they all showed up. They weren't trying to overturn the government. They were trying to make sure that justice was done and that the truth was, uh, that we knew what the truth was before we certified those electors. You know, one thing I did not, I failed to finish up with uh, Rachel was that Julie Kelly, in reporting about uh, how Mike Pence and Mark Short and uh, Jacob, the attorney, they waited until the last possible minute to notify Congress that the vice president would not go along with what John Eastman had uh, proposed or made as a possibility. And actually, they, they claimed that he told President Trump several times 
that he was not going to do what he was asking, what Trump was asking him to do, and that was to take John's the path that John had laid out that he could delay it. Uh, Trump actually called Pence. This is we know this around nine thirty in the morning on January the sixth, and Mike Pence did not put this in his book. And Pence, Mike, in that moment, did not tell President Trump that he wasn't going to do what President Trump had asked. He didn't even know. Uh, and so, but but Mark Short and his attorney uh, Jacob was right there when he made that call. You know, I think you have to look at uh, what happened on January sixth in context. And Vice President Pence, I think, was playing cover his butt. Um, he saw all the protesters, and I don't know if he got scared or if he was afraid. Like, I don't want to be responsible. I think what happened is he did not want to be responsible for what might happen if he paused the vote. He saw his career hanging in the balance. Let's face it, he's always wanted to be president. That's why he took the vice presidential slot. Um, and I think that he saw, man, if this thing goes sideways, if I stop the voting, everyone is going to blame me. They're not going to blame President Trump. They're going to blame me because I made the decision. And I'll tell you, I can't, look, I can't read his mind. I can't read Vice President Pence's mind. But I look at evidence, and that's what I see. Well, I think that's that's uh, interesting speculation, and of course, what I'm doing is speculation too. But I actually am afraid it was more insidious, and I, you know, because as uh, Julie has told us here, and as his attorney, Pence's attorney, in court in that in that uh, procedure that was happening to John in California, claimed that Mike Pence told the president over and over again he wasn't going to do that. Julie says that that's not true. And that Mark Short and the the attorney Jacob, who was on with Mark Pelly, hid what Pence was going to do. They actually laid out a paper for him. He knew exactly what he was going to do before he even went in there. And the fact that Mark Short, we all know, those of us who've watched Mark, and you can even go back and check this from television appearances, he was a never-Trumper. <clears throat> and we knew that in the White House he was pushing to make Mike Pence the president. So... I don't know if it was that innocent. I, I wish your version were right, Bruce, but I don't know. I want to play one last clip. Uh, I mentioned that John was uh, unrelenting on telling the truth. This is an interaction, uh, and uh, you know the, the press has been after him. So this came up. I believe this happened in Georgia, but I'm not exactly sure. But here's John responding to a reporter. Let's listen. My legal team and I will vigorously contest every count of the indictment in which I have been named and also every count in which others are named, for which my knowledge of the relevant facts, law, and constitutional provisions may prove helpful. I am confident that when the law is faithfully applied in this proceeding, all of my co-defendants and I will be fully vindicated. Do you still think the election was stolen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Still. No question. No so, question in my mind. All right. So that's John. I mean, he just is uh, steadfast. I wish I would like to think I could be that faithful to the truth no matter what uh, what happened. I think uh, John reminds me of an, our current Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You know, he, I think he'll go down in history as a man of courage if history ever gets told correctly. Any for, further thoughts, babe? Uh, no, I just... I, I think it's a done deal, probably in California, unfortunately. And I think we have yet another victim of January 6th. Yeah, I do too. 
All right. Well, this is uh, this is it for us. Um, on uh, I want to tell you that you can donate to John Eastman's legal fund. Just go to John Eastman Legal Defense Fund, and you can help him because he's incurring hundreds of thousands of uh, legal bills. Well, that's all we have for today, and I'm so happy and grateful that you listen to us. If you have a question or maybe you don't like what we said, you can call us at 662-821-2040 and leave your comment. You can write us at sandy at afr.net. You can always find us on any podcast platform. You can see follow-up information on Sandy Rios 24-7 Facebook page. Uh, and uh, that's how you can find us. I really do appreciate you listening. One last thing, I want to thank our sponsors. That's Preborn, Preborn Network Clinics. You know what they do. And also Christian Healthcare Ministries. Go to preborn.com slash Sandy to help preborn. And go to chministries.org slash Sandy to check out a different, maybe a better way to take care of your family's medical needs. Thanks for listening on today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7.